0: Last Sunday, we wrapped up Paul's gigantic section on scriptural service. And we saw that in chapters 12 all the way through the end of chapter 14. That was a huge section on that subject. And ultimately, what he was doing is correcting the Corinthians' carnal views concerning the spiritual gifts, Christian service, these sorts of things. I don't think I've ever talked about the spiritual gift of tongues as much, but during that time. I mean, I felt like, like my wife was telling me every week, every week, every week. And I'm like, I know, but it's Paul's fault. It's not really my fault. But man, it, just, it, just, it was such a, a focus in that section. And uh, praise God, today we are beginning a new section where Paul continues correcting the Corinthians, and this time he is corrupting what appears to be their corrupted views of the gospel. Um, Of all the things that they got wrong, which we know was a huge laundry list, to, to get the gospel wrong is definitely the most dangerous, and there seems to be a problem here with the gospel. Apparently, members in the Corinthian church were not taking the resurrection of Christ serious enough. It seems that that's the issue. They were treating it like it was a kind of a tertiary or secondary issue. Um, I wouldn't say that they were calling it unessential to salvation, but there was, there was something wrong with the way they viewed it. Um, one commentator said that they were seeing it as an appendage to, to the Christian faith or to Christianity rather than as the Christian faith. It was just something that was kind of tacked on as opposed to it being literally a main component in the Christian faith. That was George Carey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he's a recent guy, 1991 to 2002. And this correction of their carnal, faulty view of of the resurrection is entirely contained in chapter 15. Now, I do not commend the Corinthians for having a weird view of the resurrection since it's an essential doctrine. But I, I do commend God in his providence that the correction, you know, that as he corrects his people, we end up with, in the end result, we end up with the, the greatest chapter on the resurrection that there is in the Bible. So sometimes when, when people are at fault, it God produces something out of it that's just spectacular. And this is, of course, how we ended up with all of the creeds and confessions and, and everything else, because error comes in and then the error is corrected by God and you end up with a wonderful creed that corrects. And this has just been church history since day one. So we're calling this section really, it's all contained in 15. We're just calling it scriptural statutes. And this morning we'll begin to focus on the first portion where Paul reminds the Corinthians of the biblical gospel. And this will be, over the course of two weeks, a six-point sermon with six Gs. We'll look at three today, and Lord willing, three this coming Sunday. I had every intention of doing the whole thing, and Chrissy had all the slides in there, and I'm like, ah, we're only going halfway, and oh, i got to change the slides? Yeah, so uh, my sermons are already long, just... Think about me trying to do all of this and rejoice that I'm not. So, three today, three next week. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. This whole section on the reminding the Corinthians of the gospel is in verses 1 to 11, but we're going to deal with verses 1 to 4 today. And I think I ought to pray before we get to work. Lord, thanks for your word and for the gospel. Without it, we are nothing. And thank you for re-articulating or defining what the gospel actually is in this very text so that we can have absolute clarity on it. Because I think in this day and age, there's absolute confusion on it as to what it is. A great many things are called gospel that aren't actually the gospel. And so we praise you for this text. And we are even thankful for Not really the error, but we're thankful for the response that you gave through Paul to this error, which produced one of the most beautiful, exciting, extraordinary passages in all of the Bible, chapter 15 here. And so, Lord, as we begin to look at this first section, I pray the same thing that Philip was praying. We know you're going to speak. The question is, will we listen? The song could have been called, Listen, O Saints, Because the problem is not on the speaker's side. You have spoken clearly. You have spoken pertinently. You have spoken with precision and authority. The problem is always on our side with listening and obeying. And so help us this morning to hear the gospel and to obey the gospel, to receive it properly and to stand on it as you told these Corinthians. So we want to give you glory for all things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's pick up where we left off last week, beginning a whole new section and subject, and we'll deal with our first G, first point. Paul, the first thing he really describes in the first couple of verses is the gospel in which the Corinthians were standing upon, or the gospel that we would stand on verses 1 and 2. He says more than that here, but that's really the main point. And he says this, and this is how we know they have a problem with the doctrine. I mean, just coming right out of the gate. He says, now I I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Why would he say that? Because there's, there's something wrong here. And he says, if this is a gospel that I preach to you, and he says that you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. And he says, if indeed you hold fast to the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. So very coming right out of the gate, he's introducing a new subject, a new section, and a new error that he has to deal with. And Paul was totally aware of the fact that there was various levels of doctrinal decline occurring in the Corinthian church. He, He knew this. He was informed either through the letter that had come to him through Chloe's people, 1 Corinthians 1.11, or by some other way or method. But he, he knows that there's some, you know, he knows that there's all these other issues because he's been addressing all of the forms of carnality, but he's also aware that maybe somebody, maybe Chloe's people in the letter said, it's not that they're just de- doing these things and suing each other and giving approval to these things, but Some people in this church are are messing around with the resurrection of Jesus Christ the gospel itself. So he knows what's going on here. And I like how he begins by addressing the brothers and this is what he's done throughout the epistle. These are, what he's essentially saying is there are brothers and sisters in this church. He doesn't address the sisters entirely because men are, you know, the, the head and the authority and they're the ones that are supposed to be leading in the church. And so that's exactly what he does here. He says, brothers, these are the men of the church. They represent the headship. They represent the authority. At the end of the day, the buck really stops with the men in a church and in particular the elders, although this church didn't have elders yet. By addressing the, the men of the church, the brothers in particular, it implies that when doctrinal decline becomes a problem in the church, it is firstly and primarily the responsibility of men to deal with it, especially the elders, if the church indeed has elders. I mean, he, he introduces this whole next bad thing, and he's talking to the guys because. They are primarily responsible for what comes in to the church and what takes seed in the church. And what, in particular, we know that's the elders, but I think it's all the men in a way. You know, the men of the church must learn from Adam's mistakes and be ready to drive the serpent out of the garden of God's people, the church. Now, he doesn't say sisters. It it was Adam, our first brother, who had the responsibility primarily to make sure that nothing came into the garden that would cause trouble and lead them astray. Dude's petting the snake. What are you doing? So I I think that this this is huge for us guys that since the brothers are always being addressed, at the end of the day, the buck stops with the brothers, with the men It's the men of the church that must work to keep keep the serpent out. And 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 just to, to not just not just to make sure that he doesn't enter, but to keep him out. Because we know that the devil has a way. Once he's been expelled, he has a way of trying to slither back in. Every brother, every man of the church is to be vigilant. Since the adversary, the devil, is a, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for one to devour. First Peter five eight. I've heard men in the pulpit diminish that text and say, you know, the devil really isn't much of a threat. He's more like a snapping chihuahua, and well, chihuahuas don't devour anyone. Lions do, and that's what he's like. He's looking to destroy and to kill. And if you don't think that he has the power to do that, then you haven't studied Job with us, have you? Now, every brother is to be vigilant because we do have an adversary, and he likes to slither right in and cause all sorts of trouble. Obviously, in Corinth, he did that, just like in the garden. Every brother is to be Armed with scripture because it is the divine weapon that destroys strongholds, arguments, and lofty opinions against the knowledge of God. Second Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. So you gotta be watchful, you gotta be alert as a man in a church. You you gotta be armed with the only weapon that we have, and it's certainly the only weapon that works against the devil and all his schemes. sadly many brothers in the corinthian church were like the disciples in gethsemane rather than being watchful and and ready and ready to be tempted and to deal with that stuff they were dozing off matthew 26 40 to 42 and the end result in the corinthian church was doctrinal decline. We're not, you know, when we started off, we we took the resurrection really seriously and we praised God for that because that's how we were raised to new spiritual life and that's how we'll be raised in the future. And then after 18 months, I don't know if it really matters. And it is the gospel. You know, the devil doesn't slither into a a body of believers and attack the tertiary, secondary doctrines. I mean, he does, he can. He can use those things and make those the mountains instead of the foothills. But for the most part, he's not concerned with secondary issues. He's not ultimately concerned with tertiary doctrines, because there are doctrines that are less important than others. He aims his fiery darts primarily at the non-negotiable statutes that are foundational to our faith and to Christianity like the deity of Christ that that doctrine's attacked in more church circles than non-church circles there's entire denominations that call themselves Christians that have blasted that doctrine right into orbit another one would be the atonement and certainly here the resurrection that's what the devil sets his sights on that's that's what he he fires at and that's what he gets people all screwed up on now the devil why does he do it because he hates the gospel why because the gospel removes image bearers from the domain of darkness where he controls and destroys them you know every time the gospel the spirit takes the gospel and applies it to a dead sinner and makes them alive and makes them a believer, that is one more person that is removed out of Satan's kingdom. He doesn't like losing people. He doesn't like it when they're transferred from his kingdom to the kingdom of Christ. He hates that. Now, we in our nature don't like to suffer losses. Do you think that the most evil being in creation likes it? No, he hates it. He also hates the gospel because it it ruined his rulership. It put to shame his demonic comrades. It stripped him and the demons of the power of death and hell. Jesus holds those keys now. Colossians 2.15, Revelation 1.18. So Satan hates the gospel more than anything because it robs him of subjects and it robbed him of power. And so, why would he fiddle around with this doctrinal issue or this theological issue when really what he needs to go after to stop him from hemorrhaging any more people in the kingdom of darkness? He must stop the gospel. If he doesn't want to lose anyone else, he's got to stop it. And that's why he aims at twisting and distorting the resurrection or the death of Christ or any of the other gospel doctrines. You think he cares about tongues? he's already victorious on that one in so many church circles that's all they care about but at the same time I mean it's a secondary issue and it could be that 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 he works through this extraordinary obsession these days in those days on tongues to finally lead people away from some other more primary doctrine that certainly seems to be the case here in Corinth I mean if you would have went up to these people and said I'll tell you what I will exchange tongues you give me the resurrection and I'll give you tongues. They probably would have been like, because they wanted it so badly. Doesn't make any sense. Paul says when he, when he came through Corinth, he, he preached to these people, these brothers and others. Of course, they weren't brothers then, but he preached to these people the gospel is what he says. I mean, that's ultimately how these men in verse 1 and throughout the epistle became brothers They weren't brothers until the gospel came and they got saved. He's certainly not calling them brothers because there's some kind of a Jewish connection to them because this is Corinth. These are Gentiles. These are not brother Jews. These are brother believers because of the gospel. Just by calling them brothers, he's reminding them of the gospel because that is the way in which they became brothers. Nobody becomes a brother Without the gospel, so he passes through and he preaches the gospel. They're brothers, and yet some of them were now somehow forgetting it, or at least part of the gospel. It's almost like what Paul is saying here, just initially that you know what your brothers, what you're trying to embrace here as gospel is not the gospel I preach to you therefore i i I must remind you of the gospel i preach to you and you know this this applies to every church not because every church forgets the gospel but because every church somehow thinks that it's we've come in through the gospel and now we need to move on to other things and the next thing you know there's there's in this church because they focused on all these other things whether it be marriages or any any of these other things end times or anything that this church over time because it's left the gospel because it thinks that's an entry point now over time that church doesn't even seem to represent the gospel itself so this is this is applicable to all of us we all need to be reminded of the gospel the funny i've quoted this a million times but if somebody charged Luther with this. Why do you keep talking about, you know, justification by faith? That's part of the gospel. Why do you keep? Because you people forget every week. Your default is to earn. If you're not hearing the gospel all the time, what are you going to end up doing? Trying to earn your salvation through merit. You have to hear about what Christ has done and the finality of it. And so this is totally relevant to us. Notice how he says you received it and were are standing in it or are standing in it obviously received as past tense if if you received something you've already taken it it indicates that at some point probably 18 months earlier when he came into the city and started preaching that they had received or embraced or believed the gospel they received it as truth okay they heard the gospel and and the spirit is working and they say that makes total sense I feel like that guy right there is talking to me. Anyone else feel like this? Before, I didn't understand these things, or I'd never heard them. But like my experience at Big Valley, like, I've, have you been emailing this pastor? There were people in the setting that were, it just, boom, it hit them, and, and they received it. That's the truth. I need to be saved from the penalty of my sin. They understood, and they, they grasped it, and they received it. They took it in. So that's a past tense thing, that they had received it, they had received it as truth, and then he says that you stand in, that's present tense. Receiving's past, standing in is present tense. See the difference? It indicates that the brothers were literally, even at that moment, with all of the nonsense and carnality happening in the church, and I mean, right? we've studied this for 14 chapters now and some of us have wrestled to think that these are actual believers right I just doesn't seem like it because of all the nonsense but there Paul says the gospel you stand in they're standing in it right now it's present tense and I, I think it's It's kind of weird that they would be standing in the gospel with all those behavioral things. It certainly tells us that there's the possibility to be very carnal while standing in the gospel. It's never made much sense to me, especially when I do it, but it's there. But I think this is meant to be good news to them and to us here because it shows that they are not yet fully apostate. They had not fully abandoned the resurrection of Christ. They didn't say it's, you know, we, we don't care about that anymore and make their own gospel. Their beliefs, the gospel, were undoubtedly under attack, but they had not fully changed to the point where they had thrown parts of the gospel out. Nothing essential had been thrown out. In fact, I think to better explain this situation in the context, j says that he doesn't even think that it was actually the resurrection of Jesus that had come under attack in the church or that they had difficulty with. He thinks it has to do with their own resurrection that they were concerned about. Like, we don't reject the re- re- resurrection of Jesus Christ. We just don't understand how ours works, so we kind of reject that. And that, that could be a plausible explanation, although I think it's deeper than that. I think the, I think the resurrection of Christ was under attack, too as I just read through the whole chapter, but somehow they received this gospel and they were standing in this gospel. And maybe what Paul's referring to here is the brothers that are the remnant inside this church. They weren't the ones that were committing all the carnality and all that. They were the ones that were faithful and putting sin to death and killing off all the, I don't know, When Paul preached the gospel in Corinth, these men that he's addressing here, they received it as truth. They stood on it as the only foundation for their salvation. And Paul says they were continuing to stand in it when he wrote this epistle. They were standing in it at this very moment. It's all present tense. And because they had received it early on, past tense, and were standing in it, present tense, Paul says in verse 2, you are being saved. Now, this is a sobering statement. It's extremely clarifying. People today are under the impression that they can simply receive the gospel and be saved. You know, they go to a, a crusade or something and somebody preaches the gospel and they hear it and they receive it. Maybe they even go forward and pray a prayer and fill out a card and, you know, get sent to a local church where they can get into the fellowship or something people are under the impression that that's that that, that they're saved if they just receive it like that. But Paul is saying that it's that, that that's not how biblical salvation works. Receiving the gospel as truth is not enough. I mean there's a great many people that might pass through your life i don't know if it's a great many but there will be people that will pass through your life and 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 you know you they know the gospel and it's not that they really disagree with it they're willing to receive it i mean it makes sense to them what does that mean they're saved not necessarily you see just receiving it falls short isn't that what the demons do they know it right? James 2.19, they know that God exists. I mean, they're before him all the time. How could they deny that? They even shudder. They're more fearful of God than pagans are. And sadly, even more fearful of God than believers are. Paul is saying it's not enough to receive it. He's saying you must also stand in it What is standing in the gospel, right? You've got to receive it, and you have to stand in it. He describes standing in it as holding fast to the word I preached. Okay, so to stand in the gospel is to obviously receive it, and it is to keep believing it and to stand on it as the only foundation for your salvation. You're standing on it. You're standing on Christ. You're standing in Christ. The implications are that you stay there in it, that it doesn't leave you. It's not received and then forgotten. It's received and remembered daily. You you want to live it. You want to obey it. That's what it means to stand in it. The person who stands or keeps believing the gospel, that is the person who is saved. Not the one who merely receives it. The one who receives and stands in it. The one who remains in it. The one who holds fast to it. Based on Paul's words here, how could a church ever think it's okay to leave the gospel for deeper truths? The very thing that we're called to stand on must be articulated to us regularly, re-articulated to us regularly. We must be reminded of it all the time because in this flesh, things are easily forgotten. It's not enough to receive. You have to stand in it. You have to continue in it. that's the person who is being saved right he he doesn't even put he says you're that person is being saved that's present tense we tend to think of salvation as once and done it's not once and done it's a process those who are saved are being saved the finality of it is death or when christ comes back after that you're not being saved anymore you're fully saved but until he comes back, you're in the process of salvation. In fact, after you even go to be with Christ, after you pass away, your salvation's still not complete. Oh, yes, it is. No, it isn't, because you haven't received a resurrection body. That's the finality of it. That's glorification. So it's a process, Paul says. It's present tense, it's happening. And what is it contingent on? Holding fast to the word. We're Calvinists in this church. We believe that God saves us. We believe the author and perfecter will perfect our faith. We get that. We understand that. And I will simply say that the person who's truly saved will stand in it and make it across the finish line because of God's sovereign power, not because of their efforts, because look at the Corinthians. Look at us. We, we, We cannot say that a person who's received the gospel and maybe even stood in it for a while and then utterly abandons it, how is that person being saved? The only way they can be saved is if they're holding fast and don't let go. That sounds like human effort. It's not really human effort, but in a way it is. Israel didn't go enter into the promised land because of them. They could have went into it, but they chose not to. So there is a human responsibility factor to this whole thing. But what Paul is saying ultimately is that the real brother or sister in the Lord will receive it and will stand at it. They will hold fast to the gospel. That's the person who's being saved. Who's the person that isn't being saved? The one that doesn't hold fast. The one that's like bad soil, right? What does Jesus talk about? The parable of the sower and the seed there's plenty there's I think there's far more bad soil around us with people than there is good how many people have you known that have passed through your life or maybe they're still in your life that seem to receive it and seem to, seem to stand in it for a while and then have run from it you know how the soil you know the seed falls on particular soils and it lasts a little while and it goes away that's what Jesus is describing and we we say to ourselves well because that person made a decision 20 years ago yeah they're not obedient they're not walking in the lord but they made a decision 20 years ago i think they're saved are they holding fast to the word that paul preached are they actually standing in the how do you stand in the gospel and then stand in the world i mean i get some of us like to do the fence like this i've certainly done it at times in my life where i got one foot in the kingdom of god one foot in this worthless kingdom that's the battle. That's the thing that we're fighting against all the time is this flesh. The person who's standing on, uh, on the gospel is the one who's doing warfare. The one who isn't is just, just they're like Demas. They go back to the world. So a, if a person receives the gospel as truth, but they don't stand on it, they're not holding fast to it, that, that person's not saved and we need to quit telling ourselves, I think they are because that's what we do because they made some profession listen nobody who makes a mere profession is saved it's someone who continues to confess Christ they're not being saved if they're not standing in it Right, the faith is not for a moment it's ongoing there are people who do the opposite here and Paul kinda points it out toward the end of verse 2 where he says if you're holding fast to it then you're being saved he says unless you of course believed in vain what does he mean by that he means only momentarily to believe in vain is to believe for a minute to believe for a month to believe for six months to believe for five years to receive and believe and to stand in it only for a period of time and then to walk away from it and that proves the parable of the sower and the seeds true and it proves paul's words true that's someone who's done it in vain meaning it has absolutely no value at all no no eternal value and that's a scary thought to think that anyone could do that and that's why james says and paul says and others say to test yourself to make sure that you're in the actual faith make sure you're standing in it day to day are there going to be days where you 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 certainly don't act like you're standing in it. Maybe you're on the ledge. Yeah. But for the most part, that basic faith in the person and work of Christ just doesn't leave you, no matter what you go through. That's the person who stands. They are like the bad soils in Matthew 13, 1 to 7. They receive the seed of the gospel but only for a short time whereas the good soil not only receives the seed of the gospel but it ends up producing grain sometimes or some a hundredfold, some 60 some 30 Matthew 13 8 they just keep on going and they bear spiritual fruit the fruit of the spirit Paul knew that the Corinthian church was jacked up in every conceivable way but he also knew that many of its members were still standing and holding fast to the word that he preached the gospel And that's why he could testify to their salvation and admonish them to keep going, to keep pressing on. Let's move to the second point. Number two, the gospel of first importance. Verse 3a. This is massive, huge. It seems just so whatever. It's just so big. Maybe one of the biggest things he says here. Verse 3a, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, Paul did not view the gospel as an entry point into all things Christianity. He did not see it as algebra one, which of course leads to algebra two. In his mind, the gospel was all of math every mathematical system, all of it together. He did not see it as the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A through Z. It's the whole thing. It is the starting point. It's not wrong to say that, but it's also the middle point. And it's also the end point. I would say that the gospel is the pinnacle truth of Scripture or of biblical truth the highest truth of all why would I say that well think about it logically if all Scripture points to Jesus John 5 39 and Jesus came to accomplish the gospel John 10 17 then the gospel must be the pinnacle truth because Christ is the pinnacle of Scripture and the gospel tells us exactly what he did it has to be the highest truth to look at it as an entry point or as the ABCs is ridiculous Why on earth would we ever do such a thing? We don't get in with the gospel, then move on to other things like Christian marriage and you know, we're having another end times conference. We're dealing with eschatology again. Keep your eyes on Israel. It's the pinnacle truth. Think of it like this, if the gospel is the good news, and it's the only good news, CNN's not going to give you good news, the gospel is the good news, if it's the only message of salvation, why wouldn't it be as Paul declared, of first importance? It is the only message that can save. How can it be of secondary importance? When Paul came to Corinth, he delivered to the Corinthians what he had been given, the most important message ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And according to verses 1 and 2, the Corinthians received it, stood on it, were standing on it, and they were being saved by it. Just just the fact that when, when Paul reminds them of these things, remember when I came to you, I preached the gospel to you and that's the gospel that you received and that's the gospel you're standing in, and that's the gospel you're being saved at. What's he saying to them? How important, Corinthians, is the gospel? There's nothing more important. But tongues are more important to you. Spiritual gifts are more important to you. Suing your brother to get justice in this life is more important than you to you. Everything was more important to them, flexing and exercising their Christian liberty by causing others to stumble as they eat meat sacrificed to idols. Everything was more important to these people, but the gospel was not. And he's just telling them here, this is how you were saved, people. Wake up. When it comes to preaching and teaching, when it, when it comes to the work of the pulpit, when it comes to the, the, the life of a Christian, the everyday life of a Christian, the gospel is always of first importance. That, of course, means that politics are not of first importance, patriotism is not of first importance. Morality is not of first importance. Abortion is not of first importance. Marriage is not of first importance. Christian living is not of first importance. Our best life now is certainly not of first importance. Racism is not of first importance. What's happening in the Middle East is not of first importance. Dare I say, Jerusalem, Israel, and Palestinians, not of first importance. And if I flip through things through social media, I see pastors taking their pulpit time and preaching about these things. When a church exchanges that which is of first importance, the gospel for these other things, it has literally abandoned its message and charter. that's what it's done it's not that other biblical truths or social issues or familial issues and struggles and dynamics it's not that world affairs all these things are unimportant I think they're important but they're just not as important as the gospel and never will be it is of first importance because it is the only message of salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike, Romans 1.16. And bear in mind that the gospel, it's not just the message of salvation in which it just saves sinners. It also sanctifies saints, those who are already saved. And that's why there's no graduation where Christians move from the gospel to some other deeper more profound biblical truths there is no deeper more profound biblical truth than the gospel but because it doesn't just save sinners which it does because it builds up saints it's that's why it's equally of first importance the gospel is deep it is deep Because it's entirely about the grace of God and who can fathom the depths of God's grace. Such an exercise would be an exercise of futility. Trying to bend your mind around the entirety of God's mercy, good luck. You'll probably go insane. It's plenty deep. If it were merely... Shallow. why would creatures with superior intelligence to, to us, they're far more superior to us in intelligence and knowledge and theology and everything else. In every way, they're more, more uh, superior to us. And if, if, if it were just this little shallow little kiddie pool, then why would creatures that are way beyond us never tire of looking into it, the angels? 1 Peter 1.12. But if it baffles the mind of purely spiritual beings that don't have the encumbrances and failings of us and they sit here and they gaze at the gospel and marvel at it in splendorous wonder never being able to reach its depths. How could we ever say it's a kiddie pool? Let's move on. As if dealing with Christian marriages were a deeper theological issue not saying we shouldn't deal with Christian marriages but I'm saying what fixes Christian marriages the gospel hello not 12 steps unless those 12 steps are Jesus died for you Jesus and maybe they can help but they must be gospel you know my position on that you got to have the gospel in there if it's gospel it's good If it's not, I I think sometimes we're wasting people's time. It's a waste of time for me to sit up here and try to parallel what's happening in Israel right now to Revelation. That is a waste of your time. And the the scary thing is, is it's what we want to hear more than anything because it tickles the ears. I'd love to hear about that. Make some parallels. I think that just shows how we are in our human frailty that the gospel is it, it's of first importance, but it's not always what we want to hear. Certainly not what the unbeliever wants to hear most of the time. And we want to be entertained and teased with other things. It's of first importance. It's extremely deep. None of us in a million lifetimes could ever discover all there is to know about the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. I think that... (laughs) what we understand about it is it's a little grasping of it at best even by sprawl the gospel is certainly satisfying believers do not tire of hearing it i certainly don't do you i especially never tire of hearing it when it's presented from various angles throughout the bible you know somehow somebody's Preaching, doing a good job in Leviticus and tying things to Jesus, that, uh, that gets me excited. And if all Scripture points to Jesus, then that should be the point of Leviticus. Pastors just need a way to figure out a way to, to build a bridge there. And God's provided in Scripture, if you look careful enough. John Piper described the Bible as... The gospel is, or he described the gospel as, the gospel is the good news that the everlasting and ever increasing joy of the never boring, ever satisfying Christ is ours freely and eternally by faith in the sin forgiving death and hope giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why did I pick that quote? First of all, it's amazing, but primarily because I underlined in my notes ever satisfying Christ. The gospel satisfies because it points us to the ever-satisfying Christ. What is he? Living water, the only one who can quench our spiritual thirst? What is he? The bread of life, the only one who can nourish our spiritual appetites? How could the gospel not be of first importance when it is the thing that links us, connects us, and describes this living water? this bread of life, the ever-satisfying Christ. It is of first importance. John 4, 10, John 6, 35 describe Christ as the water and the bread. You see, the gospel doesn't just get us in. That's the way a lot of churches look at it. It gets us in, then we move on. It doesn't just get us in. It keeps us in, Right? It grows us in, meaning it doesn't just get us in, it keeps us in. It's by the work of Christ that we stay in this thing, and it is a thing that nourishes and builds us up. It gets us in, it keeps us in, and it grows us in. It speaks of the saving and sanctifying work of Jesus Christ, and that is why it is of first importance and must never be forgotten nor replaced. Amen? This is precisely why Paul declared his allegiance to the gospel in 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. I decided that while I was with you, speaking to the Corinthians, that I would forget about everything except Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. When I came to you, I decided I would put all other things aside, even though some of those things might be important issues to deal with, certainly applicable here in this carnal context. But the one thing that I focused my mind and my message on was nothing else but Christ crucified, the gospel. It's the only message he preached to these people. And it is not just the central, but really the only message that should be preached from every conceivable angle from Scripture. If indeed all Scripture points to Christ and He is the gospel, which it is true, then it should be our focus at all times. Let's move to the third point. The gospel according to Scripture, verses 3b and He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in in accordance with the scriptures. You know what we just read? The gospel. (laughs) You'd think that after building us up a little bit, Paul would eventually lay out the gospel. And that's exactly what he does. He's not going to just remind them of something they should already know because they're acting like they don't know it. He has to remind them of the gospel and then reiterate or restate the gospel. And you just heard it. That is the gospel. It is the death. It is the burial. And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul's definition here in verses 3b and 4 that's precisely what the scriptures teach and how they themselves the rest of scripture defines the gospel it's nothing more than that it's nothing less than that the Old Testament and the New Testament that's the gospel of the Old Testament and the New Testament we just read now when he wrote these verses he obviously had the Old Testament in mind Since the gospel accounts had yet to be written, Mark was probably the first to be recorded around 70 AD. That would have been maybe three to seven years after the death of Paul, after he was sadly martyred and executed, beheaded by Nero, who was a disaster. When Paul says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament passages that that do predict the death of Christ, such as Psalm 21.1 and Isaiah 53.5-12, Daniel 9.26, Zechariah 13.7. Those verses, they all predict the death of Christ. And like Isaiah, is far more explicit and goes into more detail, but this was all predicted in the Old Testament. When Paul says... Christ was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's referring to the Old Testament passages that predict the burial and resurrection of Christ, such as Psalm 16:10, Isaiah 53, 9 to 10, Isaiah twenty two sixteen, 16, Daniel 12, 2-3, Jonah 1:17, Hosea 6, 1 and 2. What Paul is is laying out. This gospel that he's laying out isn't his gospel. I mean, it is his gospel because he was given it by Christ, but it is the gospel of all scripture. And we know that all of these things were fulfilled in the New Testament and Jesus came and died and did the things that he did. Paul's writing this before that stuff was written down, but he's fully aware of it. He's not just referring to the Old Testament here. He's referring to what he had received, verse 3a. The Lord Jesus himself had revealed the gospel to Paul. In Galatians 1.12, Paul says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul had the Old Testament gospel, which is the exact same gospel that Jesus gave to him, himself, and personally at some point during his ministry come from people it came from God Paul reminds the Corinthians of the biblical gospel the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ not just because they may have been struggling with some of its doctrinal components But because it is the message and mission of the church, not tongues, not Christian liberty, not celibacy, which is something they focused on in marriages. That would have been weird. Any other things that they were distracted with? None of those things are the message of the church. None of those things are primary. They're not of first importance. They might be important, but they're not of first importance. And the trick of the devil is to lead us away from the gospel into tertiary issues that can never be fixed without the gospel. You see how the devil works in churches? We'll get them off the gospel, and we'll get them onto something else. And then they'll forget about the message that redeems people out of my cruddy kingdom, and it keeps them in a perpetual state of selfishness and sin because the only thing that can bring them out and fix marriages is the gospel itself. It's a trick of the enemy to get us away from the gospel onto tertiary issues like well in Palestine. Which is a name given by the Romans by the way. He reminds them of the gospel because it's of first importance. It's what saved them. It's not what they're focused on they're, He's coming out of a whole section on tongues. Tongues was their gospel if I could just speak in tongues. The gospel, I think we would all agree, we just read it. It's a very simple message, right? Christ died for our sins. He was buried and rose again, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for us. I mean, that, I, I've memorized that for 20 years. That is the easiest thing in the world to memorize. It's so simple. And yet, its implications and benefits are staggering, right? See, we're talking about the effect of the gospel. If you talk about the gospel, yes, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it also includes doctrines like election and predestination and all that. So, so it has these arms and wings that go out in its fullness, things that have mystified and blown the minds of the most brilliant saints for all of time so it is simple and yet it is profound because of its extensions and its benefits but one of the traps that people fall into these days is that they present the benefits of the gospel and call that gospel For instance, they will say things like God can give you joy and God can give you peace and God can give you a sense of purpose in this life. And this is exactly what Jesus came to do. This is the gospel. That's what they say. And I've heard that. Now, it's certainly true that God can give people joy, peace and purpose in life. Hallelujah. Amen. Right. All right, brother, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. But guess what? That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Those are benefits of the gospel. They are the blessings of the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not all that it can do for you. You see, it's when a person repents and believes the gospel, that's when God will give them joy, peace, and purpose in life. You see, people get... The carriage ahead of the horse, they talk about all the benefits with ever, without ever talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then they call that gospel, and Paul is saying that's not gospel. The gospel is a particular message that doesn't necessarily go into all the detail of explaining all its implications and everything. It's very simple death, burial, resurrection to save us from sin. It's that simple. If you get joy from it, that's a benefit from it. That's not the gospel itself. Do you understand what I'm saying? Guys conflate these things today, and they'll preach an entire message on all these benefits and then call it gospel, and they have not even talked about the gospel. That's a trick of the devil, to get us using the word gospel a thousand times in a sermon, to get us to talk about the joys and the benefits and and the afterlife and all and the deliverance and all these things and to get us to talk about all those things without ever mentioning the actual gospel and people aren't going to be saved when we preach the gospel of joy without the death burial and resurrection it's not the joy of the gospel that saves it's the gospel itself i've probably told this story before but Maybe, maybe not. I have a, quite a few pastor friends, and one of, one of them that I know well, and I, I do care about him deeply, and he was invited to preach at a, a big church. He was pastor of a small church. He was invited to preach at a big church, and, um, and I said, what are you going to do, man? What are you going to speak on? I was kind of testing him, you know, to see what he's speaking on. He says, I'm just going to preach the gospel. I said, can't go wrong there. Right on go for it let me pray for you and after it was all said and done several weeks later I decided to to go on to the that church's website and to check out my friend's message and to listen to it and it was like 50 minutes long and within that 50 minutes of being in that big big pulpit with all those people he said the word gospel probably 70 times worse than me with Glossa. Okay, that was like, people were like, if he says that one more time, I'm going to hit him with some lip gloss, lip gloss, right? He said it about 70 times. And he talked about all these benefits and all these things this audience could have in the gospel. I mean, it was really an amazing sermon. And at the end of it, I realized he never actually preached the gospel. He never mentioned once the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when it was all said and done, and I took a listen, of course, I was like, he thinks he did. Let me reach out to him. And I said, so how did it go? Oh, I am very confident. I I really enjoyed my time. I said, what did you do? He says, I preached the gospel. I said, did you? Yeah. Well, what would you talk about? Then he proceeded to re-preach the sermon, which was like, I already heard this. I'm like, but I don't hear the gospel in there. What are you talking about? All this is gospel. I said, that's not gospel. Those are the benefits of the gospel. Those are all great things. They're great things that should be preached. We should preach those things. But at what point did you actually talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which according to scripture is the only gospel? Well, I I think that it's it's implied in what I said. Okay, people don't get things when we imply them. We have to say, we have to explicitly. I stopped there and said, okay, great. You know, hung up, whatever. But it's like, because I didn't want to blow the guy out, but it's like, I just thought for me personally, do not fall into this trap that he's fallen into of thinking that if I say the word gospel and if I talk about all the great things that you get in Jesus that I've somehow preached the gospel. Phil, never fall into this trap. The gospel is an explicit message it is the death burial and resurrection only when you've declared those things can you honestly say that you've preached the gospel so I took it and applied it to myself if we do not mention the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ we're not actually preaching the gospel why because that is the gospel according to the scriptures let's stop here for now lord willing we'll resume this exposition this coming sunday i'll end with just a few questions firstly have you received the gospel as truth Hmm? have you Do you believe that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the good news and only message of salvation? That's that's the receiving it. That's the taking it in. Is that what you believe of it? Is that what you believe about it? Secondly, are you standing in the gospel as if your salvation depends on it? You don't just receive this truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's your truth and you're standing on it I've got no other hope this is it. Is that you believing day by day moment by moment that Christ died to pay for your sins he was buried and he rose from the grave on the third day absolutely and totally and finally victorious over sin Satan death hell for you you see, if we have received the gospel and are standing in the gospel, Paul says we are being saved by that gospel. Receiving and standing demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is in us because the receiving and the standing are literally His works in us and through us. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Ephesians 2.5, if the Spirit is in us, it is obvious that we have salvation. John 3 5. He is the seal of salvation, the mark of salvation. 2 Corinthians 1 Ephesians 1:13. Since salvation is the Spirit's presence and work in us, we cannot boast. We cannot say, Look at what I received. Look at what I'm standing in. Look at what I've done. We cannot cannot attribute the reception of it and the standing in it to ourselves and to our own strength and to our own ability, because if that were it at the end of the day, we would not receive it after a while and we'd stop standing in it. It's the work of the Spirit in us. He is the seal, He is the guarantee of our inheritance that we will inherit eternal life in all of the gold and beauty that comes with it. This is the Spirit's presence and work in us. We cannot boast. We can, however, rejoice. We can, however, thank God for his incredible mercy and grace because that's why we are where we are. And we can seek to bring him glory in all things. That's what we should do in response, amen?